together. Welcome again to Freedom and to those of you who are now joining us online. Uh, welcome. Good to have you be a part of Freedom Online. We are in a series that uh, is entitled The Path of Progress. We've been in it for several weeks, and the whole point of this is to figure out how do I get over the hard stuff, how do I really get past the things I can't shake loose in my life, and how do I experience real union with Christ? How do I get on the power? How do I get on the intimacy, the really good stuff in life? And what we've seen is the disciplines become the key. The disciplines are what place us before the Lord in a way to be able to receive His power and grace in our lives at new levels. And what we're going to talk about today is a word that almost has become a dirty word in the church in the course of my lifetime. It's one of those words that can get you in trouble because we're going to talk about today the discipline of submission. And you know why that has become a dirty word, because particularly in a marriage relationship, boy, that's the word that will get you in trouble faster than anything, isn't it, when you talk about submission. But I want to tell you today that when you think about Christianity, if you had to, just as an exercise, if we took the time and said, I want you to come up with ten words that are the ten most important words that would define Christianity for us today. Obviously, we're going to start the list with things like love and faith and obedience and repentance and prayer and things like that. But I would suggest to you today that one of the words that might not quickly come to mind, but if you really get down to the heart of Christianity, that has to be among the ten words that best define what it means to be a follower of Christ. The word submit or submission would be one of the top ten. You cannot walk in power unless you learn to practice the discipline of submission. It's that simple. But I'll also say on the front end of things today that there probably is no concept that has been more twisted or misused in religious circles than the idea of submission. Would you agree with that? Because, you know... Faith is designed, Christian faith is designed to bring us into real freedom in life. We, we understand that. But there's nothing like religion to put somebody in bondage either, is there? I mean, it's, it's this great paradox. Christ will set you free if you really get to know Christ. But people who claim to be Christians will hold you in bondage if you let them. Some of them will. Because they're just twisted, messed up people who love legalism more than actually following the reality of the person of Christ. And so we'll start out by saying this, that no spiritual discipline has been more abused than that of submission. So we're going to have to make sure we stay really centered on Christ and what this is about and not some twisted version of what submission is all about. And I, I will also begin by reminding you, as we said last week, that every discipline brings with it a corresponding freedom. You remember we keep saying throughout this series, the disciplines are not the goal. The disciplines are a means to an end. The disciplines position us toward a greater end. They are not the goal. You know, you think about any discipline... If it doesn't bring you some kind of benefit and freedom, you're not going to continue to practice it, right? I mean, think about outside of the spiritual disciplines, just discipline like the discipline to eat a healthy diet and not overeat, the disciplines to exercise. Why do you do those things? It's surely not because it's so much fun, is it? We, we do it so that we can experience the freedom of you know, a healthy body and greater endurance and better self-image and all that kind of stuff. If it weren't for those benefits, we probably wouldn't fool with it, would we? And some of us still struggle to, to want to fool with it, even with the benefits. Disciplines always have to lead to greater freedom. There's the classic example of, of the uh, ancient 
Greek orator and statesman Demosthenes. Yeah, I'm sure you did a quiet time about Demosthenes this morning. But uh, he, he's a curious character, among other things, that he's remembered for is not only the great speeches that he gave in Athens, but how he trained for those. He had a particular discipline that he practiced. He would practice his speeches down by the seashore where the waves were crashing loudly. But in addition to practicing where he would have to speak over the noise of the waves, he would fill his mouth with pebbles. And that's how he would practice his speeches, with a mouthful of rocks over the roar of the crushing waves. And you go, why in the world would anybody do that? It's not because of the fun of talking with rocks in your mouth and having to shout over the waves. It was because of the freedom that it produced. You see, he became a great statesman and orator because that freed him up to then be able to speak without amplification system or any of those things so that he could enunciate very clearly and very loudly and do it so very comfortably because he had practiced the discipline day after day that the the discipline itself wasn't easy, but it bore good results. That is a picture of what disciplines do. The disciplines may not be easy, but they lead us to greater freedom and power. And so I'm saying that on the front end because the discipline of submission is very challenging. What we'll talk about this week and next week, they're very tied together. Submission and service, very much interconnected. And both of them are tremendously challenging. And so I would just remind us as we dive into this that the disciplines, including submission, that they have no value unless they place us before God to experience greater intimacy, greater freedom, greater power. If we don't get something as a result of this, you won't stick with it. And so that's why what I'm going to do today, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to start with the benefits. Because what we're going to talk about today is so challenging that if you don't have the reward out there, there's no chance you'll want to do it. You're not just going to do it because. The truth of the matter is we don't want to submit. We want to be in control. We want to live like we want to live, right? I want to live for me. I don't want to have to consider you. Shame on me, right? Well, you're, you're no different, are you? We all want to live however we want to live. We don't want to have to yield to anybody else. So we're going to start with the benefits, and then we're going to just look at some uh, five different biblical teachings on what this is all about. And then I'm just going to rapidly give you some ways where we're specifically supposed to apply this and close with just an example of this in action. So first of all, let me just name for you five benefits of living the discipline of biblical submission. The first one is this. Submission sets us free from always needing to get our own way. Let me say that again. Living the discipline of submission, it frees you up from always needing to get your own way. Now, you may hear that and go, I don't think I even want that. If that's one of the benefits, I don't want it because I like to get my way. How many of you like to get your way? And everybody with your hands down, you're a liar. (laughs) We all like to get our way, don't we? This is not saying the discipline of submission ensures that you won't get your way. The truth of the matter is lots of times you're going to get your own way. But what the discipline of submission does, it frees you up to get to a place that you don't have to get your way in order to be happy. That's real freedom. Because I've known lots of people in life who could not be happy unless their way won out. Unless they got what they wanted. I mean, we see kids are born this way. We're all born this way. A lot of us just never outgrew it. That if we don't get our way, we, we may try and put on a happy face because we realize we're not supposed to pout. But inside, we're stewing and we're fuming and we're just so ticked that we didn't get our own way. When you learn the discipline of submission, you're free to be at a place where you don't get your way and you're still okay. You're content. You're happy because your, your happiness wasn't tied to you getting your way. You've learned to practice this discipline. Number two, 
Submission frees us to discern between major issues and what's just my stubborn self-will. That's a real gift. To be able to figure out what really matters. How many times have you ever found yourself sucked into a situation where the more you talked about it and the more you've tried to force your will and get your way? If you're married, you've done this with your spouse plenty of times. You know, this becomes a matter of principle and you've got to understand where I'm coming from and you've got to see that I'm right and you're wrong and you've got to get this. And suddenly what seemed like it was just a little bitty issue, it's just titanic. We're about to use weapons of mass destruction verbally here because you just don't get it and this is a big deal. And only the you realize a little while after that argument is over with that you just go how did I get so ramped up about that it really wasn't a big deal I mean does it matter that much whether you use a towel twice or only once before you throw it in the, the dirty clothes is that worth thinking about divorce over you know whatever it is we, we can just get so wrought up over some things that aren't that big of a deal the discipline of submission will get you to a place that you can discern what really is a major issue that needs to be hashed out? And what's just me being hard-headed and just needing to get my way? A third thing it does is submission frees us up to have a yielding spirit that can just drop a matter and forget it. That's a gift, isn't it? Don't you love having to deal with somebody who can just handle things in a, in a light manner? That it's like, if something's important, I can treat it as important. But I, I can just not get my way and go, okay, fine, I'll let it go. You know, the test of whether or not you're there is to ask yourself, how many times in your life and in your relationships do you find yourself when you're not easily going to get your way that you just go, fine, whatever, we'll do it your way. The unspoken thing being because I'm more like Jesus than you are, right? And Jesus would certainly say, fine, honey. Whatever you want, right? That's what Jesus would do. Not. You see, we can say the right stuff and do the right stuff and not practice the discipline of submission. And you know how to tell the difference in your own self. With your mouth, you're saying fine. And in your heart, you're going, oh, you're going to pay for that. I am not going to forget this. You may have won the battle, but you're going to lose the war. You can say the right thing and even do the right thing and not have a submissive heart. But when you begin to practice the discipline of submission, you truly can just drop the matter and, and just be kind of lighthearted about it and just be able to go, okay, that wasn't how I thought we ought to do it, but that's all right. There's probably more than one way to do it. And you just are able to let it go. Now, the truth be told, there are some people at this point who are beginning to dial into what I'm talking about and recognizing, that ain't me. I wish I could. But I can't just let things go. I mean, how do you do that? Well, it doesn't happen overnight. It comes as a result of learning to practice the discipline of submission. Fourth, submission frees us up to value others along with their dreams, their needs, and their desires. It's important to understand when we're talking about submission... That while Jesus talked a great deal about lines of authority, Christian teaching is, is very strong in understanding, operating how much of the kingdom operates along lines of authority. But that in understanding that, you realize Jesus was not creating some hierarchical pyramid of power. He absolutely was not. And people can so easily take the teachings of Scripture and twist them into that. I mean, think about the different things that you could pull out. And say, well, see, it says here, women, 
you better submit to your husbands. Children, you better submit to your parents. Servants, you better submit to your masters, to your employers. Church folks, you better submit to your elders. So it's like, man, if I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor, I'm getting close to the top of the pyramid. If I could just be president too, I mean, wow, I'd just be on top of that pyramid. No, that is not at all what Jesus designed. That's not what Christianity teaches. See, that's the enemy. He doesn't love to just make up junk that's completely unlike the truth. He loves to take the truth and put a quarter turn on it and use that. Because it has the ring of truth, but he twists it enough that it puts people in bondage instead of setting them free. And that's what he's done with the concept of submission. Jesus isn't creating a pyramid. And in fact, as we'll see in much more detail next week, if there is a pyramid, Jesus turned it upside down. In teaching us how ultimately it's the one who serves everybody else who's the greatest in the kingdom. You see, when you buy into Jesus' concept and and his teaching on submission, you truly begin to to care about others and what they think and what they, they dream of. And you realize that attitude is the key more than anything else. You know, the Old Testament homed in on on actions. Okay, in your relationships with other people, here's Old Testament. Stop killing one another. Here's a good start. Stop stealing each other's stuff. Stop taking each other's wives. Those are pretty good starts. But that's just like at the level of act like humans, not like a bunch of baboons. Don't be like the animals. And so, you know, there's the fundamental stuff about what you ought not to do to one another that hurts one another. But Jesus always elevates that. You know, with Jesus, it's always, you heard that it was said, and he'd quote the law or the practice of the Jews, and he'd say, but I now say to you. You know, you've heard that it was said that you shouldn't kill one another. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm telling you, you shouldn't get angry and stay angry at one another. You've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't. But I'm going to elevate that and tell you that you shouldn't look lustfully at one another. He's always raising the bar. And he's raising the bar to say, it's not just about what you do to one another. It's about the attitude that you bring toward one another. That when you learn to practice the discipline of submission, you truly develop, as a result, an attitude that cares about other people at a level that you celebrate their wins. You care about their dreams and their desires. And your heart doesn't go, oh, rats, I hate that happened for them and it hadn't happened for me. That you can just enjoy and celebrate good things in their lives because you value them. And then fifth and finally, submission frees us to truly love those who mistreat us. Are there Many teachings from Jesus' lips that are harder to think even possible than when he said, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Am I the only one who finds that to be just like beyond hard? Just like, are you kidding? Not, I mean, it'd be one thing to say, don't go kill them. You know, don't assassinate them on social media. But he says, love your enemies. How does that work? Well, in the natural, it doesn't work, does it? I mean, who in here has just the in you to love your enemies in your own power? None of us do. I mean, you just about have to be jacked up in the head to be able to do that in your own strength. And yet, when you learn the discipline of submission, you get freed up from bitterness and seething anger. 
when others don't treat us like they should have treated us. You actually learn the joy of not having any rights anymore because the reality that you've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live and dead people don't have any rights to defend. Dead people don't have anything that they need to get hurt over. You actually begin to live this life that Christ intended. And so you get freed up from this old concept that most of us live by. Because most of us are a little bit like Medea. Live in the Old Testament. Any of you watch Medea? Am I the only one pagan enough to watch Medea? You all know what Medea is like. Medea, she'll tell you straight up. You get me, I'm going to get you back. In fact, if I think you're going to get me, I'm going to get you first before you get me. That's Medea's living. You know, she takes eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to another level. And a bunch of us live by that. We, we couch it in nicer terms. You know, you be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You be dirty to me, I'll find a way to get you back. Now, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to do it in a way that nobody can accuse me of that. But we live with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The discipline of submission frees you up from ever having to live that way anymore. That how you look at and treat the people who don't treat you well is totally unrelated to how they treat you. Because you just have a different perspective on them. You get freed up to see them much more as Jesus sees them. So I want you to just stop and consider for a moment. Because I I realize some of that sounds far-fetched. But if today you could sign up for something that would guarantee you that... You can be happy and content without having to get your own way. You can really discern what's a big deal and what's not. You can drop matters and forget about them and it not continue to make you twist inside. You can really learn to value others, their dreams, and the things that matter in their lives. And you can truly love the people who treat you badly. If you could just sign up for that, how many of you would want it? You want a subscription to that? I want it. I don't know of any other way to get it than what we're going to talk about now. Learning to incorporate the discipline of submission in our lives. Okay, those are all the benefits. What in the world is it? What are we talking about? Here are five truths from the scriptures about the discipline of submission and how we live it. First of all, the the core truth is this. Submission is denying self and embracing the cross life. If there's just one passage that sums it all up best, it's what Jesus said many times. But uh, in Mark 8:34, where after calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Everybody say that together. No to themselves. Take up their crosses and follow me. Most of us grew up with a translation that says anyone who would come after me must deny themselves. I like this translation even better. Just put simply, you've got to learn to say no to yourself, take up your cross and follow. Now, I realize in modern times that phrase, take up your cross and follow, we've heard it in church so much that I think it's lost a lot of its power. Because, you know, we sing about the cross and we think about the cross, but it's kind of weird how with the passing of time, things, the meaning behind things changes. Because when we think of a cross, unless it's in the context of like communion or something, we think of a cross, we think about a decoration for our homes or, you know, something great to go on the end of a, of a necklace or on earrings, right? I mean, we, we wear, it's really, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not suggesting that. But if you could take somebody from 2,000 years ago and just jump them forward in time to today, They would be totally weirded out at the thought that we decorate our homes and our bodies with crosses because they could only equate the cross with one thing, that it was an instrument of death. 
This is how you kill somebody. It truly, the, the closest we can come to it is if we would decorate our homes and churches and our bodies with electric chairs. It's like, oh, don't you love my little yellow mama electric chair? You know, th- this is just a perfect representation of the one in Alabama that's put so many people to death. Isn't my electric chair beautiful? We'd be like, what a freak. Who in the world is that? I'm telling you, first century people, all they could think of was cross, torture, torment, form of, of how to kill somebody. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross, it wasn't just like, oh, that's so nice. Take up your cross and fall. No, it was like, do what? I mean, cross, that's the one thing above everything else we want to avoid. That's, that's a far more torturous death than an electric chair ever could be. We're going to take hours and sometimes days to torture you to death on a cross. Jesus said, you want to follow me? You're going to have to consistently learn to say no to yourself and what you would chase after in so many situations. And you're going to have to take up your cross. Yeah, that means death. You're going to have to die to yourself in order to be able to follow me. There's not a plan B. If we're honest, doesn't most of your heart and head want to run as far as you can from that teaching? I know. Everybody's too spiritual to say yes to that. Don't you want to run from that teaching? There's a big part of me that would love to. That sounds incredibly hard. It's because it is. It is incredibly challenging to say no to yourself again and again in order to say yes to Jesus and many times to say yes to Jesus by putting the desires and needs of other people ahead of ourselves, denying ourselves in the process. Submission is about the cross life. Secondly, Jesus calls us, just to clarify, What Jesus is calling us to here is to self-denial, but never to self-hatred. That's some good news in this. You know, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, well, really, there are two. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there is a second that's like it. It's right up there with it. And it is that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's interesting how we'll hang on to the first half of that second command and seem to never give any consideration of the second part of that second command. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's interesting to note that those two things are are very related to one another, loving your neighbor and loving yourself. Now, we all know that it's very possible that you can love yourself a whole bunch with very little consideration of your neighbor. Have you known anybody like that? This means yes and this means no. Known known anybody like that? I love myself a lot. Uh, By my actions, I don't love other people very well. You've all known people like that, haven't you? You want me to tell you what I bet you've never known? is anyone who loves others really well and hates themselves. Because it's an interesting relationship between those two things. While you can love yourself way more than you love others, how much you love yourself becomes a ceiling for your capacity of how much you love others. In other words, you find somebody who doesn't love themselves, and they don't know how to love other people well. Have you ever seen what that looks like? The, the person who is just so racked with guilt 
and shame and disappointment at their own life. And a lot of times that will be rooted in having somebody significant in their life. Like, you know, maybe their parents or a spouse or somebody who just always beat them down and berated them and made it clear that they were so disappointed with them. And so they have a horrible self-image. They don't love themselves. They just are, and they're always rehearsing just mental garbage. Just, you know, I'm so I'm so bad. I'm so ugly. I'm so terrible. You know, I, I just all that negative stuff that gets said over and over in the enemy joins in and whispers those same lies so you you don't have any love for yourself it's impossible to love other people well at all because that becomes for you the ceiling of your capacity to love others now jesus said a healthy person loves god above everything else but he loves himself and his neighbor really well You can't get better at loving others until you love yourself. And so it's important to understand, while Jesus is teaching self-sacrifice, he's not teaching self-hatred. And the reason I make this point is because there are all kinds of people and groups who want to turn it into that. Like, you know, Jesus really doesn't want you to be happy at all. If you're having a good time, Jesus is probably very sad today. He's very disappointed with you. No, he's not. God is your father, and he delights in you taking pleasure in good things he doesn't hate you he has the highest opinion of you of anyone and he wants you to know that and to love yourself self-denial doesn't mean self-hatred and it's funny how along the way we'll find people who love themselves and don't love others well but they want to have the appearance of that and so they will appear to live the cross life in selected instances they will appear to put others needs ahead of their own but they'll always be sure and do it in a very public fashion so that everyone can see i'm a martyr i'll do this for you i'll give in to you but just notice me i'm doing it for jesus you can always tell them because they're the ones that you need a little Pepto-Bismol after being around them because they make you nauseous, right? That was just no extra charge for that comment. Number three, uh, Jesus' most radical social teaching was the redefining of greatness. And we're going to talk about this in detail next week, so I'll just kind of zoom by this. In Mark 9:35, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place. And be the servant of everyone else. It it helps if you can have this picture in your mind that in uh, Jesus' day, when you would go for a big banquet or or just a big uh, family meal or something where all the friends and guests are invited, they would always arrange the table in such a way that either the host or the most honored guest would be at the head of the table at one end. And everyone else had an assigned seat. And the seats were assigned based on your importance. And so the two most important people other than the host or the honored guest, would be the ones on their right and their left hand. And as you'd work your way down the table, you'd go from the most important to the least important. Now, that would be a pretty interesting seating chart every time you get together with people, wouldn't it? Because you would know exactly where you stand with everyone else based on where you get seated. And it's like, oh, there's old Big John. He's at the far end of the table. We know he is the biggest nobody in the room. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm not. John knows I love him. He's, he's awesome. But, you know, it, if you're at that end of the table, it doesn't matter how big of a man you are. We know you're a small man in the eyes of, of whoever set up for this meal. And Jesus is saying, and this one gets brought out in the New Testament multiple times, when you go to a meal, don't try and work your way up to the head of the table to go, I want everybody to see how important I am. He said, no, you just go ahead and choose to be at the foot. You choose the lowest position. You choose the life of serving others. And that's the whole idea of the cross life, that you would put others ahead of yourself. You honor others ahead of yourself as a choice. 
Jesus is redefining greatness when he says the great ones are the ones who put themselves at the bottom, letting others take the position of preference. And he modeled this in John 13 when on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathering with his disciples. And, you know, another of those things that's a clear measure of who's the lowest in the room is, you know, they always wore sandals and dusty roads, um, you know, no paved roads. And so they always had dirty feet. So when you'd gather for a meal, the lowest in the room, the servant, would take the, the basin and the water and the towel and would have the dirtiest job of washing really nasty feet. And so when they gather for the, this Passover meal, this really special evening, they're in a borrowed room. They're they're kind of on the road. And so it's not like they have a servant present to take care of that. So there they are, Jesus and the twelve. And you look around the room and it's like, well, so who's going to wash our feet? I mean, we don't have a servant. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to pretend like I'm the, the lowest ranking of the twelve. These are the guys who are fighting about who's going to be number one and number two, the right and left in the kingdom, right? I mean, these are guys, we want to be at the head of the table, not at the foot of the table. I'm not washing anybody's feet. I guess we're going to eat with dirty feet tonight then. And while they're all thinking through all this, Jesus just silently goes over and strips off his outer robe, wraps himself in a towel and gets a basin and some water. And he goes around and he just starts washing feet. To which Peter's like, do what? I'm not going to wash anybody's feet, but I'm not going to let... I mean, there, there may be some question as to who's great and who's least among the twelve of us. But one thing is for sure, he is the greatest. When we add him to the mix, we know who's the greatest. He can't wash our feet. Jesus is like, I mean, Peter's like, no, Jesus, do not wash my feet. You can't do that. And Jesus makes this a teaching point. You consider me your master and Lord, and I want you to see what I do. I'm not just making a show here. I've lived my life this way. That no task is too small. No task is beneath me. No one is too lowly for me to want to serve them. And that's what I want you to do. This is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. That you would humble yourself in the presence of others. Oh, this is hard, isn't it? Is there anybody ready for me to just change and go to a happier topic? Because, I, I mean, I get to this point and I'm like, it's about to take my breath away to realize this is the cross life. This is being a follower of Jesus. Well, let's press on. Don't give up. Number four. Biblical submission focuses primarily on the spirit with which we view other people. It's not just about making a public show of serving others where somebody could see, oh, I'm really a servant and a martyr. It's the spirit that you carry. In Ephesians 5, which is that really dicey passage that people have thought about, it's the one that, yes, uh, it's going to say, wives, submit to your husbands, and that's been so debated and misused. But people love to run past verse 21. The immediate preceding verse, verses 22 and to the end of Ephesians 5 and then the opening of Ephesians 6. It's all about this issue of submission. But it's funny how people always want to separate it from the verse that immediately precedes it. Verse 21, which where Paul says, submit yourselves to one another. Everybody say one another. Submit yourselves to one another because of your reverence for Christ. So now that we understand we have to submit to each other, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, you love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. How could we ever confuse this? How did we ever mix this up? The person who loves another to the extent that he would lay down his life for that person. I will do anything for you. That is a picture of submission. We have sandwiched wives submit to your husband in between 
All of you submit yourselves to one another. Husbands, be willing to lay down your very lives for your wives. Love, the, the word agape love, it means to meet the needs of another, to put their needs ahead of your own. It is the clear teaching on submission we have sandwiched. Wives, submit to your husbands between those two huge truths. And somehow we've forgotten the top and bottom pieces of bread around that. Do you follow me? I don't think so. Y'all are looking at me like a calf at a new gate, you know. Submit. I know, I came from the country, I'm sorry. Submitting to one another. Husbands, loving and submitting to your wives. Wives, submitting to your husbands. These all fit together. And it's all about the spirit in which we relate to one another. It's not about creating this system where somebody's in control of everything and forces their will on everyone else. It's helpful to understand a couple of things about this. The world expects an order to be affirmed in which the powerful rule over the weak. Now that doesn't mean powerful in terms of necessarily smarter, but in some shape or form, those who contain who somehow have more power exerting authority over those who have less power. And so there are several given situations where we know what the world expects. The world expects that women should submit to men. And historically they've had to, right? I mean, history bears this out. And in fact, this is still the case in most of the world. Why is it that women submit to men historically and in most of the world today? It's for one simple reason. Men are physically stronger than women in most instances. And that has ruled the day. Might makes right. And I want to tell you, what we've ever known in American culture is so mild compared to what it looks like in other cultures. I don't have time. Right? I'd tell you what we experience when we go to places like Africa. And you see just to what extent human nature will take advantage of strength over weakness. And ladies, there's no insult at all in anything that I'm saying. You get this. What a horrible, tyrannical thing it is for men who just are physically bigger and stronger to rule over in really oftentimes wicked ways over women just because of strength. And so by the same means, you know, parents and adults rule over children because of strength, you know, power over them. Those in in government positions rule over those who are governed because they possess power, owners, masters, employers over slaves and servants. All of these different examples that we could give of how, you know, the powerful rule over the weaker or the less powerful. Now, it comes as a bit of a surprise that when we read the New Testament, every example that I just gave is in in some form, it seems to be affirmed. I mean, think about what the scriptures teach. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Servants and slaves, submit to your masters. Submit to all governing authorities. In every one of these, we have a command to submit to those in authority or who are in a position of greater power. Now, at a cursory glance... It's easy to misunderstand that, and many people have. And they'll even say, well, you see how the Bible is just so archaic and barbaric? I mean, it's, it's reinforcing this thing of women being subservient to men and, and human beings, you know, servants or slaves, having to serve and submit to masters and those in authority. And at a cursory glance, you'd say, wow, maybe the Bible really is doing that. No, it's not. Here's what it is doing. It's actually giving power 
back to those who felt so incredibly powerless. Because there's a difference between just obeying and actually submitting. I mean, how many times in your life have you done something that you really didn't want to do? You obeyed. You went along because you had to. Because somebody was in, in power or authority over you. And so you did it. But boy, you kept a bad attitude the whole time you did it. Tax time's coming. There are a lot of people who pay their taxes with that attitude, right? I'm going to pay it. I'm not going to like one bit of it. But I'm going to do it because I have to. I'm going to get out of all of it that I can, you know. Jesus didn't teach just obedience. Jesus taught submission, and submission is always a choice. And this is actually a liberating concept. To the slave who in the first century had no choice, who had no real hope of freedom on earth, it was a liberating concept to realize I'm in a situation where I don't get any choice about obeying. But the New Testament, Christianity, teaches me I get a choice as to whether or not I submit. And I'm suddenly empowered to realize I can submit or I can remain, you know, strong-willed and stiff-necked. I choose to submit out of reverence for Christ. It's actually empowering to realize I have a choice in this. You can be my master. You can be my boss. You can be my, my husband, my daddy, my whatever. And I may have to obey you, but I get a choice as to whether or not I submit. And I choose to submit to you because I have the authority to do that. I have the freedom to do that. Okay, that's one half of the equation that's actually pretty interesting to, to just understand. But here's the really radical other half of the equation. While the Bible affirms those in authority and those with power and, and how those with less power submit, it also turns that all around. It reverses that. Not only should children submit to their parents, parents submit to their children. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't embitter your children. Don't be overbearing with your children. Husbands, deal with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. All of those who are in authority are called to serve those who are under their authority. Do you see what he's done now? He's turned this whole thing around. He has not eliminated the lines of authority. He's just redefined this. That regardless of where you stand in any man-made pecking order, Jesus is saying in every direction you look, you bring an attitude of humility and submission that I want to serve you. I want to honor you. I want to take into consideration what matters to you and what's going on in your life and what you need. And it really doesn't matter where the world, whether the world would say, I hold more power or less power than you. Do you see what I'm talking about? Submission goes up and down the lines of authority when it's redefined by Jesus. And it's all about an attitude of the heart. So Jesus has created a new world order that is marked by universal submission. And it's a great place to live, by the way. Fifth and final thing that we'll say about submission is this. Biblical submission does draw a line when submitting becomes destructive. Boy, we need that news, don't we? Because you see, if there aren't some limits to the concept of submission, people will have to stay in some really destructive places. It is so important to realize that the Bible doesn't teach just one truth, and this one truth trumps everything else. The Bible teaches many different values and priorities for us. And when one priority in the Scripture 
is being applied in a way that it causes us to violate other priorities in the scripture, we have to re-examine the application of that in this situation. Easiest example that I can give. A woman is just getting the daylights beaten out of her by her husband again and again and again. Now, an unhealthy Christian comes along and says, well, honey, I hate it for you. You just need to work hard at being a better wife and try not to make him so mad. But, you know, ultimately, the Scripture teaches that you should submit to your husband. So you just got to go back in there and try and work it out. That is foolishness. That is hogwash. Those are lies from the devil. It's never right for a woman to have to go in and to continue to be abused by a man again and again because wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. You see, there's another principle in the scripture that is equally or more important, and that is God teaches us the sanctity of every human life, and we cannot violate the value and sanctity of a human life who's being abused by another person in the name of, well, but you've got to submit. No, that's wrong. Sometimes following Christ is complicated. And we can't just, with tunnel vision, hold on to just one truth of Scripture. I'll give you another example. When you work for an employer, by the Scriptures, that's somebody that we would owe submission to. When you work for an employer who calls on you to do something that you know is wrong, it's morally wrong, it, it's, it's ethically wrong, and maybe illegally wrong. For instance, your boss tells you, to bill a company that, that you've provided services for to bill for more hours of service than you actually did. They'll never know the difference. They don't know how many hours of accounting work you did on, on their stuff. They don't know how many hours you spent doing their taxes. You, you pad that by a couple of hours here and a couple of hours there. I'm telling you to do that. He's your boss. You should submit to those that you're under authority to. So what do you do? Do you pad what you bill for? Would that be the right thing to do? It certainly wouldn't be the right thing to do. When, when what we are doing in the name of submission is destructive to others, submission goes out the window. Now, we may have to pay a price for standing on a matter of principle and ethics. And most of us at some point in our lives get tested on this kind of stuff, don't we? we probably most of us could stand and, and give examples. I, I think back to when I was a, a young man. And uh, I had a job while I was in graduate school working for uh, a very wealthy guy who owned, among other things, uh, a realty company and a bunch of different apartment complexes. And so uh, I was his office manager and would have to, among other things, handle the stuff when people were calling in wanting to look for an apartment. This was in Tuscaloosa, so students are always looking for apartments in, in the summer and in August. And um, so it would be a real busy time. All these people, you want to completely fill the apartments in August. But the owner was a racist. And, I mean, he didn't make any bones about it with us. Now, he wealthy guy, known in the community, and so he didn't want to be known as a racist. But for me, as the guy who actually has to handle the applications and people who are calling for an apartment and having to do the credit checks and all, he would just say, if anybody calls and you can tell that they're African American or if they're Middle Eastern or if they're Indian, those were his three groups. If you, you can tell by their voice, if there are any of those three, you just tell them we don't have any apartments available. To which I'm like, but we do have apartments available. I know we do, but, but you know, and he'd give his lame reasons for why he wasn't renting to any of those three groups of people. So you just tell them. Now, the way things worked for us was I would handle all the paperwork and would interact with the the potential clients, but he would always be the one to show the property. So I'd set up appointments for the property to be shown, and I'd call him and say, you're supposed to meet somebody at 2.30 at Highland Apartments, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and 
And so, you know, I, I realized really quickly, oh my goodness, I, I may lose my job fast here because I, as a follower of Christ, I can't lie to these people. And so people would call and, you know, sure enough, it's not hard to tell whenever somebody has a heavy accent or whatever, you know, that this is somebody who's from India or somebody who's African-American. And you, I would set up the appointment and, man, I'd know the phone call was coming. He, my boss would be so angry. Could you not tell on the phone what color that person was? Well, I had a pretty good idea. Well, why did you set up that appointment? Because they were looking for an apartment. Well, why did you tell, we, tell him we had one available? Because we did. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Yes, sir, you did. But I can't lie for you. I can't tell you that we didn't. I mean, he would get so angry. And I'm thinking, he's going to can me. So we just had this back and forth. Every year I hated the big rental season because we do this dance every time. But as much as I valued the thing of submitting to authority, and I wanted to submit to him. He was my boss. I wanted to do what he wanted me to do. But I could not lie for him. If it's destructive or unfair to others, we have to set boundaries. Now, here's where it gets really tricky. Sometimes we get put in situations that are not black and white. If your child is being treated unfairly in the way a teacher grades them at school, and it just becomes pretty clear to you that there's not a fair, even standard being applied, do you teach them just to submit and go along, or do you get in the middle of all that and straighten that teacher out? I mean, we could together we could make a long list, couldn't we, of all those gray areas where it's like, what do you do? Do you submit and just just let God work it out, or you to get in there? Do you get in there and stir it all up? And the scriptures are actually pretty full of examples where it's not just the easy thing. Well, we just have to submit. I mean, Romans thirteen. Do you ever pause to consider the context of Romans thirteen, where Paul says every authority is put in by God, and so you yield to the governmental authorities, and we're supposed to. He's saying that to the Roman Christians. There's no place that's harder to be a Christian than in Rome in the first century. And he's saying, you guys need to submit to these leaders who love to dip Christians in flammable substances and then tie them up on a pole and light them at night to light the streets. Submit to those authorities. Ouch. That's really hard. And yet... When the apostles were confronted by the authorities who said, we're going to beat you, we're going to lock you up, and we may kill you if you don't stop talking about this Jesus person, never preach or teach in his name again. And you know what they said back. You choose for yourselves which is better for us to do, to obey God or to obey man. But as for us, we've got to obey God. We can't stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. You see, that would do harm to others to fail to tell them about Jesus. And so they're like, we'll just have to pay the price of defying authority. Paul gives a a great example of of actually addressing authority that's used out of line. For the umpteenth time, he gets arrested and beaten because of preaching the name of Jesus. And he's a Roman citizen. And then the authorities realize after the fact, oh no, we've just beaten the daylights out of a Roman citizen. And he didn't even get a trial. And in Rome... That's not allowed, not for a Roman citizen, because it's a real honor to be an actual citizen of Rome. And so they're like, the leaders say, get him out of town quick. We've got we've to cover this up. Just, you know, get, give him a consolation prize and get him out of town. And Paul says in response in Acts 16.37, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and have put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. We're not yielding to the authorities here. Let them come themselves and release us. In other words, they're going to have to face up to us for what they've done. 
So do you feel the tension here? Do you feel what I'm talking about? It's not always easy. And at this point, we just need to agree, it's not always going to be black and white. This is why we had better be really tuned in to seeking the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of really godly spiritual people that we know we can listen to to help us see clearly what do we need to do. We're all on the same page with those five? You tracking with me? All right, I want to just quickly give you a quick picture as we've done in each of the disciplines of just seven acts of submission, seven places we need to apply this. I'm going to run through these quickly. The first one, we submit to God. James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. We all want the second half of that, don't we? We want to be able to tell the devil to get lost and us be free. But you don't get that without submitting your life to God. So I would suggest the attitude reflected in the prayer of Thomas Akempis, who, who each day would pray this. God, as you will, what you will, when you will. That's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? God, as you will, what you will, when you will. God, you do what you want to do how you want to do it, and when you want to do it. And I just say yes to that. We sang the song that the chorus was, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. This is the prayer that says, Yes, Lord. You, you do what you want to do in my life, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. I would encourage you, start every day and end every day with just a simple prayer saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. You do what you want to do. However you want to do it, you do it in your timing with me. Begin and end the day with that, that prayer. Secondly, we submit to Scripture. Jesus is the living word, the scripture is the written word, both of which reveal God to us. And we submit ourselves to the scripture by hearing it, reading it, receiving it as the truth, and then seeking to put it in action. And by allowing the Holy Spirit throughout the course of the day to point out, uh, this is where you need to live that. This is where that teaching that you heard six months ago, this is where the rubber meets the road. Now what are you going to do with that? Thirdly, we submit to our families it would be a great idea for, to say that the theme verse for every family was going to be Philippians 2.4, which says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When I get to do premarital counseling, if there's one simple idea above everything else that I try and drive home in every session we ever do in premarital counseling, it's just that. If you will just every day of your life make it your goal to put the needs desires, wishes, and feelings of your spouse ahead of your own, you'll have a great marriage. You get two people doing that, you'll have a phenomenal marriage. If there could be three deeds that define what family life looks like and submitting within the family, it might be the words listen, help, and share. That would be a pretty good defining three words in every family life. Just listen, help with the stuff that may not be your job. Help make life easier for your mate. And share what you could just claim as your own. Number four, we submit to the body of Christ. And within the body, I mean, the scripture gives clear teaching about how we, we do have leaders and we follow the leadership of the church. But really what I want us to see is from a bigger picture that it's not, again, it's not a pyramid. But within the body of Christ, we realize that we all serve one another. That we look for ways to serve one another. I'm going to be honest with you. We're losing this in the modern church, at least the American expression of the modern church. It is so difficult to get people to, to step up and serve in just fundamental ways. And, and please hear my heart in this. I'm not trying to beat anybody up over, over what I'm saying. I'm just confessing we're not just where freedom churches. Every church I've been a part of in my adult life 
When it comes to children's ministry, preschool ministry, if we didn't pay some people to be a part of the, the team that does that, we just have screaming babies in here every Sunday. The bottom line is, there's hardly anybody in the church, and I'm just going to say it the way it is, there's hardly anybody in the church who wants to give up an opportunity to be in worship and be under the teaching of the Word on a given Sunday to go be with kids who are just sucking you know, the life out of you rather than giving something back to you. I know we love our children, but that's how you feel about it. It's like, you know, when, you, when it's your week to serve... You're giving more than you're getting. I know we all say, oh, but I get so much out of it. Yeah, if everybody got so much out of it, the nursery would be full of volunteer workers, and it ain't. The truth of the matter is, every church I know of is begging, just like we are all the time. We need more people to be on the rotation in preschool. We need more people on the rotation in children's ministry. At some point, we've got to realize this is the embodiment of submission. I would rather be in this room, sharing in communion, sharing in the songs, under the teaching. I want to be in that every week. But submission says, you know what? Sometimes I yield what I would want over what is needed, that others need for me to be somewhere else. If you're hearing that as a big guilt trip, then ignore everything I just said. That is not intended as a guilt trip. But at some point, we have to recognize that there are tangible ways for us to to live out what we're talking about. And it's not always easy. But it is Christ-like. Number five, we submit to the governing authorities. Everybody who has a television or access to the Internet has been inundated with just all of the blah in the media about our new presidential administration. And quite honestly, I don't care how you feel about President Trump or the cabinet that's being put in. I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I've been real candid about this. I'm not, I'm not pro-Trump and I'm not anti-Trump. I don't make any bones about the fact that I didn't vote for him. I didn't, you know, privately campaign for him or anything. But at the end of the day, he's my president. If he ran again tomorrow... I probably wouldn't vote for him, but he got elected. And so all this garbage that's going on, you know, on President's Day of not my President's Day. There's nothing Christ-like in that. Christians have the right to take a stand against evil and injustice, and we should. But all this stuff where we go, well, he's not my president, and I'm not going to... listen. I wasn't thrilled at all over who was my president the last eight years, but it did not give me as a follower of Christ the freedom to bash these people because there is no authority except that which God has established. And I want to tell you, if God can say through Jeremiah in his word that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, Nebuchadnezzar my servant, these are the words of God, you can't find a more wicked leader in history. When God wants to ultimately embody the greatest wickedness on earth, when he talks about what is yet to come, when everything gets really horrible, you know the term that he uses? Babylon. You want to know who ruled Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. You want to know who destroyed Israel, who destroyed Judah? Nebuchadnezzar. And God said, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Yes, that is mind-boggling. But if God can say that about Nebuchadnezzar and demand that his people yield to Nebuchadnezzar, it ain't a stretch. For us as Americans, in a day where nobody's taking us out and killing us for professing faith in Christ, to go, I will pray for my president. 
whether or not I'm a fan of him individually, I will be respectful of him because I understand the discipline of submission to authority at all levels. If he does something that I think is evil, I'll stand against that particular evil issue, but I will yield to him as my leader. Go back and reread the book of Daniel and see how Daniel, God's man, yielded to Nebuchadnezzar, to Cyrus, to Darius, pagan leaders, and how God ultimately worked in the lives of each of those men to accomplish his will. It'll give you a lot of peace about where we live today, and it'll challenge you to bring a heart of submission to the situation we live in today. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. It's okay that we have to go home and think about this and talk about it. And it's okay if some of you are mad at me at the moment. I'm a big boy. I'm okay with you being mad at me. As long as you're willing to think it through. Number six. We submit to our teachers, employers, and supervisors. Not just when what they say makes sense. Not just when they ask with as nice a tone as we think that they should have. We submit to them because they're in authority. And we submit to our neighbors. You know, we have opportunities throughout the day to put the needs of whoever we encounter. Jesus defined your neighbor as whoever you run into in the course of the day. And when you encounter somebody in need and you're faced with that dilemma of they need help, but that's going to interrupt my schedule. That's going to interrupt my day. It may be as simple as giving a ride or babysitting for a friend for a little while or when you get through cutting your grass and realizing I know my neighbor stretched to the limit, and it would help them a lot if I went and cut their grass, but that's going to take an hour of time. I could have been watching a ball game or something. Those little things become a way that we submit to our neighbors. And in so doing, we embrace the cross life, and we honor Christ. The big surprise in this is it sounds like this is the doorway to a miserable life, and it's not. It's the doorway to real life. In fact, submission frees us up to truly find our lives. Jesus said, those who try to hold on to their lives will give up true life. And those who give up their lives for me will hold on to true life. I want to close by just giving you an example. And right off you may think, why why are you even sharing that story? Hopefully by the time I'm done it will make sense. But I started by talking about the benefits. And I want to close with just a very personal story about what the reality of living in submission will do in terms of the freedoms that it brings with it. And I share this uh, by permission because it involves Jackie. We had something happen in our, uh, in our relationship and in our lives several weeks ago, about six weeks ago. It's very profound. It's made a big difference. And I just want to tell you about it because it relates to the, to the issue that I've been preaching on today. We had talked about this many times over the past uh, three years that... Um, it, it had seemed very clear that the enemy had really, at different times, targeted Jackie in ways that were just very painful for her, causing a great deal of emotional distress and anxiety and different things. And that's not a big surprise. I mean, the enemy just loves to target whoever he can, but he particularly loves to go after the spouses of ministers. I mean, there are a lot of people he goes after, but it's, it's really a wicked tactic that he has that he loves to go after ministers' spouses in particular. And so it wasn't a shock that that was going on, but it it was really kind of perplexing how persistent that had been and how there was a sense that some things had been broken and yet there was a sense of something that had not been broken. And we had pressed in in warfare for a long time and and I really had a sense in my heart that something had remained. And I'm not talking about 
hurt Jackie holding on to some sinful thing in her life. I just mean a, a prolonged attachment or attack from the enemy that just wouldn't let up. And, you know, you just start wondering over time, what's it going to take for that to finally be broken? Well, it finally was broken. And I just want to tell you about what happened on the night that that, that took place. It was about six weeks ago. And uh, it, it actually started about midnight. Um, she just, out of nowhere, went from feeling fine to just suddenly having terrible lower abdominal pain. Now, if you don't know Jackie very well, I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever known a tougher woman in my life than she is. I mean that literally. She just is one of those. She knows how to deal with pain better than most men. I, I've seen her have to cope with major surgery, like where she's had a big chunk of her colon cut out. And the pain that she had to endure with that wasn't as great as what I saw her facing that night. And it just hit like a lightning bolt about midnight on a particular Friday night. And it's, it was one of those things that, I mean, it wasn't like it just, she starts going, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable. She's just feeling like, you know, something's just like you're dying down here. And so I immediately felt impressed to begin to pray for her and put a hand on her. But even before I could do that, just something in my gut. And she felt the exact same thing. Both of us felt very strongly. This is not something physiological in nature. This is a spiritual attack that has a physical manifestation. That's not that unusual for that to happen. And so as I lay my hand on where the pain was and started to pray, I mean, I probably wasn't 20 seconds into doing that. And something, I've been involved in a lot of deliverance and warfare situations. This has never happened before that in the moment that I begin to pray for her, there is an instantaneous transfer of the pain from her body to mine in the exact same place, which that was a new experience. The cool thing about that is, I'm sure God allowed that to eliminate any doubt as to what the source of this is. Because physiological pain, obviously, doesn't get to travel from one body to the other. And so it was like God's way of confirming, yeah, you're on the right track. This is, this is a spiritual issue. And God, a lot of times, will allow pain in some form to surface to make us realize that there's something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be broken or dealt with. And he allows pain to be a gift to enable us to see with clarity and with, with some sense of urgency. We have to press in now to see this dealt with. And so we're praying, both of us uh, praying and, and engaging in warfare prayer. And she's not getting any relief. And I mean, we pressed on and prayed on and took authority and said all the things you would ever expect to say. And this went on. For 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, and it's not getting any better. And we're just, you know, pressing in and pressing in. I'm just admitting to you, I've been in some long, drawn-out warfare situations. You just get to the point where you start feeling like, there ain't nothing new to say. I mean, there's a part of you that feels like, I've said everything that I know to say, and yet I just feel... Like, we, we've got to press on. It's clear there's something demonic that's got to be broken. And, and so, I mean, we're listening as we're praying, God, show us what's going on and show us what it's going to take to break this. And I, I'm trying to just be obedient to everything that God says. And, and I'm glad you weren't there to watch because, you know, it's, it's messy and, and sometimes odd when you're in the middle of warfare. So part of what the Spirit begins to impress on me as we're praying is you need to sing songs of worship over your wife. Which, by the way, it's like body blows to the enemy when we praise Jesus. And I'm glad you weren't there because I can't sing worth a flip. And I'm singing solo over my wife, just singing, honoring the name of Jesus, worshiping the name of Jesus. And as we're doing this, worshiping and engaging the enemy, honoring Christ and quoting Scripture. And I've, I've been in these situations enough to know that oftentimes a, a, a prolonged stronghold for the enemy isn't broken until he is forced to submit and declare his name. 
You ever get them to the point that they have to name themselves? They're broken and they're usually going to be gone within a minute or two. Could not get the spirit to ever acknowledge its own name. And I'm just like, I, I, you know, I don't know what else to do. And so we're, we're praying and listening and we're asking for discernment. And God just gives a word of knowledge. That this spirit has a name. And its name is fear of abandonment. I mean, it wasn't like I had conjured that up or we had been, you know, in some kind of counseling conversation. He just kind of out of nowhere said, this, this is a spirit of fear of abandonment. And so I turned around and I, I shared that with Jackie. And then I just immediately began to take authority over a spirit of abandonment. And I mean, it was immediately broken and gone within probably less than a minute. It was broken and gone. And just the, the pain left. And I really felt impressed as we had been praying, you know, that we were supposed to, as a part of that, we were supposed to share in communion. So at 2.30 in the morning, we're taking communion uh, in our bedroom. Sweetest time of communion I can ever remember in my life. The presence of Christ was there so powerful and so real. And I want to tell you, there is a new level of freedom in my life I have never seen before. What we share is sweeter and better than it has ever been. And there will never be a doubt in my mind that something that had been a prolonged attachment and attack from the enemy was broken that night. We never would have recognized it, never would have known it if there had not been an intense experience of pain that lasted for hours and that wasn't broken because she took any kind of pill. If we had not known it was spiritual, we would have been at the emergency room. It was so bad. Now you may think, why on earth are you sharing a story like that Attached to a message like this, the answer is very simple. We want those benefits. Every one of us want the freedom. We want the deliverance and all the good that comes from it. And let me tell you, I'll be a walking billboard for the good that follows deliverance. Some of us have been living with long-term strongholds that we don't even recognize as strongholds. Some of us know that we've got strongholds and just don't know how to get free from it. Understand this. The key to experiencing God's power to walk in freedom and to get delivered always revolves around submission. Always. James 4, 7. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he'll flee. You see, you don't just get to choose to submit to God in that moment and suddenly have authority to command the enemy to go. You have to be willing to live a life of submission We have to live daily. God, what you want, how you want, when you want. And in that situation, here's the beauty of what we get to do. The scripture does say, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Submit to one another. You know what the beauty of that is? I have a wife who submits to me, and I seek to live my life submitted to her. But the beauty of what happens in this is that doesn't give me authority to ever tell her what to do. It gives me the authority to serve her, and that just becomes a practical expression of that. It's not about who gets to tell whom what to do. It's about the covering that we provide for one another as we live in mutual submission to each other. And she gets the benefit of living in submission to her husband so that in a critical time of need, we can stand with unique authority where I'm not just her friend. I'm also her husband. I'm her covering. And I have an authority to agree with her and to say to the enemy, in Jesus' name, you leave. You do no harm as you go. And you never come back. Now, he didn't leave the first time he heard that but he did leave and he left because power is unleashed 
when we get in line with God's authorities. We live in submission. And then when we do that, when we speak, it is as if Jesus himself is speaking. We want to and need to all live with that kind of authority. But we only get that if we choose to live in submission. Not just submission to God, but in submission to those that he says we must submit to. Are you with me? It's good. The benefits are good. Getting those benefits requires living the cross life. Jesus didn't just die a cross death. He lived a cross life, putting others ahead of himself. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? Thank you, Jesus, that you modeled for us what the cross life looks like. You didn't come to be served, but to serve and give your life for many. Would you help us to see where we need to live this out? Help us to see practical ways to live this at home, at work, with our neighbors. Would you teach us to love ourselves and to love others? We need your power to live out what we're talking about today. And I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, for some who need today for the first time to submit to you, I pray that you give away gifts of faith here today. If that's where you are right now, I'm going to ask you, would you just in your heart sincerely pray, Jesus, I give my life to you. I trust in what you did on the cross. And I ask you to forgive my sins and to save me. The best I know how. I give you control of my today and of my future. Live your life in me. That's the ultimate declaration of submission. Now maybe you've submitted your life to Christ, but you see that there are areas that that change needs to happen. It may be the story that I shared at the end resonated with your heart and you realize, man, there's a need for something to break and for there to be real freedom and deliverance experienced. But something's holding that up. Why don't you take a moment to just ask God to help you see where it may be that the enemy is using an area where there's something out of submission. Why don't you ask him for clarity about that? God, I pray that now and in the hours and days that follow that you would speak in clear ways that we would know more clearly how to follow you and how to live out the cross life. We welcome your work in us and we pray that great freedom would flow from that. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.